Now what? After Democrats seem to have won the debt ceiling standoff, is there anything to follow in the U.S. Congress? I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're on YouTube, on the Blue Amp channel, and of course, wherever you get your podcasts on audio, delighted to welcome back one of my very favorite guests, old friend Ryan McConaughey, who used to be, in shorthand, the right-hand man to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and he was the guy who helped to set Here's the policy agenda for the Senate Democrats. Always love to check in with Ryan on what are we seeing in Congress? What's going on? And Ryan, I got to start out by having you grade me. I put out a video two days ago in which I said the quiet part out loud. I know it's still an active thing. You're not supposed to give the game away while congressional negotiations are still happening, while votes are still happening. You, if you've won something, you don't gloat until after it's done. But I put out a video saying, I think this debt ceiling deal was a straight up, hands down win for President Biden and the Democrats. Uh, what did you give me a grade? Am I right? Yeah, I'm going to give you an A plus, and not just because I'm your friend, and not just because I enjoy being on the show. But I think you nailed it. And um, you're a Democrat, so I know you have a dog in the fight. But <laughs> just so we're clear, you work at a bipartisan firm now. You've left. Yeah, no, I work at Ford State. Yep. And you represent some of the great advocacy groups and businesses in America, and you are not particularly partisan. So go on. You're about no, to give and, me an and, awesome and grade. Plus, so Matt, I like you that. know, as a Democrat, that hand-wringing is just as much of it as cheerleading. So that's, it's not automatic. You'd be just as apt to start circular firing squad. So go on. You were praising yeah. me. Please continue. Yeah. No, I think, look, when you, know, when you see McCarthy and Graves coming out and talking to their caucus and trying to whip them for this deal, and they say, what did the Democrats get? Nothing. That's only true in the very narrow context of the legislation. But what Democrats got is they got the Biden economy. In a year when the election comes, President Biden's going to be running for re-election. I'm a little more optimistic than you about that Senate map, but a lot of Democrats in the Senate are going to be up. And if we had the full-on economic calamity of default, all people are going to remember in a year is that this economy is bad. Who's in charge? I want to change. They're not going to remember that it was hostage taking, that it was House Republicans that put us to the brink. The victory here for Democrats is they get to keep the Biden economy, which is very strong, and they get to keep all of the achievements that they got last year. Coming into this debt limit showdown, you already had divided government. The incredible legislative output for the first two years of the Biden administration, where you've got IRA, the infrastructure law, the Chips and Science Act, that was not what these two years were going to be. So preserving those accomplishments, preserving the economy, and now setting the terms for budget negotiations that were always going to take place in September, October, November, now they can start faster. That's really the practical effect of this compared to a alternate reality where we didn't go through this kind of messy interaction. I've gotten into the habit, as have most of us in our political discourse, and now that I tend to be a bit of a pundit, which I should try to avoid punditry is one of my best editors was his comment to me. Always avoid punditry. It's tough. But it, I've fallen into a bit of the pattern of dunking on Kevin McCarthy anytime I can. And it was so easy. He really did create the alley for the rest of us to oop when he went through the multiple rounds of votes for getting the speakership. And it really did look like he was set up as dead meat. He was going to be at sort of the beck and call of the Freedom Caucus. They could vacate the chair, meaning they could yank him out of the speakership anytime they wanted. They had these massive conditions. They packed the ultra-important and powerful rules committee with their members. And they really seemed to have a tremendous amount of leverage and some real red lines, no pun intended, about what they were going to accept out of McCarthy 
and what they weren't. And I've fallen into that pattern and I'm going to break it right here. Kevin McCarthy did a good job. He did a good job. And it may be one of these situations where when I say President Biden and the Democrats won, it, it's not necessarily a zero-sum game. It, there's Politico was making the case that this was a win-win and that McCarthy won too because he ultimately corralled two-thirds of his caucus to vote for this thing, which is pretty remarkable. He held the Republicans together. He held the line against the far right is now not gaining momentum to try and behead him. And in the long term, yes, it might have been a political victory if he'd managed to create an economic calamity, but it would have been a risky one. It would have been a long-term, very risky play. He'd go down in history as the speaker who created a hostage crisis and actually attacked the hostage. And I'm not sure that's good for him. And I'm not sure that it's good long-term for the Republican Party. It's certainly not good for America. So I am forced to conclude that Kevin McCarthy has done what John Boehner couldn't do, what Paul Ryan couldn't do. He's knitted together the different factions in the Republican caucus. I think he comes out of this with a win as well. What do you think? No, I think that's right. And I think this fight was a precondition for him winning that 15th ballot for speaker. This was thrust upon him. This was a confrontation that he basically had to deliver on and try to get out unscathed, which it appears that he's done. And that's when he gets a McCarthy win. And quite frankly, after the chaos of the speaker vote and the very narrow margins in the House, the bar to clear his survival, and he certainly cleared it here. And it looks like we're going to clear it with the economy intact, which is good for all of us. So I think that assessment is right. I think that there's also a lesson here from the way that the administration handled this. When you're looking at public affairs, when you're looking at communications, you know, the volume, the type of communication, the way you interact with the press always has to serve the objective. And the Biden administration objective here was get a get a debt limit do deal done that doesn't harm the economy, protects my accomplishments. And they correctly made the assessment. The way to do that is to give McCarthy breathing room. And speaking of the hand wringing of Democrats, there's a lot of criticism internally in the Democratic Party that Biden was seating the stage to McCarthy's talking to reporters in the hallway. Their Republicans are giving daily briefings. Democrats largely aren't in the room. It was a very small negotiating room. So you start to have Democrats freak out a little bit about we're giving away the store. We're going to have this awful deal on work requirement. But really what happened was the Biden team was holding strong on the substance and letting McCarthy have the space that he needs to communicate, Biden being louder here would have been counterproductive, and they had the discipline not to do that. They get credit for following through and being disciplined on the strategy and coming out ahead on their side. That's a really insightful point, because you do see this kind of dynamic develop frequently when you have these Washington standoffs. They're always going to be people who say, my side should be more aggressive. Why don't we just do, anytime you hear the sentence, why don't we just do, it's usually going to be wrong because just means simple. There's a simple answer. And as Bill Clinton famously said, for any complicated problem, there's an answer that is clear and simple and wrong. And usually the just simple answer, there's more nuance to it. I think what we're getting here a return on an investment that America made in a professional, in someone who has dedicated his career to navigating Congress. And 
I know it's really popular in political campaigns to say so-and-so is a Washington insider. You, Ryan McConaughey, are a Washington insider. That is your thing. Joe Biden is the consummate Washington insider. He was there for 50 years. He was in the Senate. How long was he in the Senate? Like 46 freaking years before, or less than that, because he was in the Senate. He was a vice president. He was the president. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think knowing how to operate and, and treating this professionally is important. I believe that expertise matters. I believe knowing what you're doing matters. And I think what you're pointing to, it's easy to say after the fact, but it's also true that he took the approach of being understated, not being out front, of letting the members of Congress kind of work through their internal process. He knew how to, as you say, give Kevin McCarthy some breathing room, and there were, Shalanda Young, head of OM, another, you and I appreciate staffers, like someone at more of the staffer level, but someone who's a professional who knows what the hell she's doing. I think you're seeing a return on investment for America in all of that. And that's, it just, it bears saying. And I, it's, anytime you hear in a political campaign that someone's too much of a career politician, too much of a Washington insider, just take it with a grain of salt because there's an upside too. Yeah, there absolutely is. And look, the circumstances dictate you can go too far and you can get too stultified. And some, sometimes sometimes you do need to mix it up and new blood. That's why you want a, a mix of people in Washington. But something that's very complicated like this, that's very high stakes, you want somebody who's cut deals before. And it's not the first time even in this administration. I mean, the infrastructure law was really driven bipartisan negotiations with the White House, where the president gave people a lot of room to maneuver. That's the been the M.O., is strength of silence in some cases from the Biden administration has really been effective. Walk softly and carry a stick. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Let's talk for a second. I'm not trying to nitpick your A plus for me. I I don't look at gift grade in the mouth, but let's talk about real world impact here. And then we can move on. We can talk about other topics, but as we put a wrap on this deal, what is the impact truly going to be? There, there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of nuance here. I tried to sum it up in just like the big headlines in that video that I put out the other day. And I think that from a high level, it's reasonable to say that the negative impacts that Democrats were worried about are very restrained. They're very small. There are some, but they're very small. Nonetheless, there's, there, there are some changes that are being made here in federal programs and federal spending. What do you think the real world impact of this deal is going to be? Yeah, I think, again, compared to that alternative scenario where you just do the annual budget process and you don't have this debt limit showdown, I think it'll be very similar. I do think that one, one difference between this bill and the 2011 showdown, that one was a much longer time frame had much bigger spending reductions and more more budgetary process. This one pulls in other things. So I think on the economic and spending front, what it will do is on the domestic side, you have the infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act or mandatory spending. The Chips and Science Act is discretionary. They authorize big numbers. Now they need to appropriate to catch up to those things. And these budget caps, uh, which largely would have been similar anyway, but they still will force more choices about domestic priorities. And China is moving ahead on quantum computing and AI. We need to keep up. So we want to invest in those programs. But we also have these other needs in the healthcare space. And so it is going to 
more sharply clarify the trade-offs and choices that lawmakers have to make each year and what we invest in among some very critical and goals that now will be in a little bit more competition with each other. Nerd alert here. This is a deep cut. We can just cover this in 30 seconds. But one of the subtle things that it's going to do is it gives a real carrot and stick in terms of getting the appropriations process done. Like I said, nerd alert here, which means that this is something that Congress has struggled to do. If they don't actually pass the spending bills that Congress needs to pass to specifically lay out, here's how much we're doing in each of these functions of government, then those functions get subjected to a cut. Is that going to work? Is Does that piece matter? It's a 1% bonus or avoiding a 1% cut. I'm a little bit skeptical. I've been mostly optimistic on this discussion, but I'm a little bit skeptical that is going to be enough. Uh, every appropriator says we want to do all 12 bills by September 30th. We want to get them done. There are very real structural reasons why that never happens. And that 1% incentive, I don't think is going to be enough to overcome those stru structural obstacles. So I think we're still probably looking at CR at the end of the year, end of the year, big promnibus, omnibus negotiation. I don't think that's going to, it's a good notion and it would be a better way to, to run Congress, but I don't think that carrot is big enough to, to actually make a change in how things are going to go year to year. I tend to agree with you and we could get into, we won't, but if people are interested in what you just started to explain, omnibus, CR, Cromnibus, your last appearance with us back in December 2022, you explained all of those terms, urge people to check that out. I do tend to agree. You would think it's weird because you would think that Republicans have a political incentive not to pass or even vote for any spending bills because they set themselves up in Republican primaries for it's just a very weird political incentive system we have. They set themselves up for a Republican primary in which someone could say, congressmen voted to spend tens of billions of dollars on government waste. There's anytime you vote for government spending, you open yourself up to that. That's particularly potent on the Republican side. On the other hand, what they collectively want is for government to make some smarter decisions and to actually set spending levels rather than just letting these things roll over year after year, which is what Congress tends to do. And so Long-term, they'd be better served to, to pass these appropriations bills, but I agree with you. It's very, very hard to do. Let's talk about everything else. This was the big looming thing that Congress had to get done. Yes, they have to pass spending. At the end of the year, they'll have to do something on that. But there's really nothing else that they're required to do. And since we're in a closely divided Senate and divided in Congress, a divided government, the prospects for Congress to get a lot else done do seem somewhat dim, but you tell me, are there realistic, you're watching this from an inside perspective, literally every single day, are there realistic prospects for Congress and Washington to produce more stuff, to, to get more done in the next six months? Yeah, absolutely. And there's always a perception that, you know, the Congresses get called do-nothing Congresses, even the do-nothing Congresses lay the groundwork for future legislation. So you do have a few key areas outside of the budget and spending fights where things are happening. I will say as a transition to this, one thing that happened after, and you may recall this, after the budget deal in 2011, there was no revenue in that package. And that's something that Republicans are crowing about right now, which will frustrate Democrats. Meaning we didn't 
raise taxes on the wealthy, which is what we were asking for last time. It's what we're asking for this time. And it's a red line for Democrats. It's like, it's like, we're just, we're never going to raise taxes on wealthy people. That's the one thing we are about. And I will give credit to, there's a great article in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago that made this point that the budget deal in 2011 gave birth to the fiscal cliff in 2012, where the Bush tax cuts did get raised for some high income people because Democrats said, we just cut all this spending. Like there's a revenue part of this equation that has to be part of this too. Republicans are looking at the Trump tax cut bill. Parts of that are expiring in 2025. They're starting to look at what they want to extend, what they want to do. So Democrats will now bring a sort of a revenue appetite to those discussions. That's going to be policy that gets worked out. Congress is actually trying to stay up and stay ahead of AI. Uh, Leader Schumer has announced an initiative to look at an AI framework and try and figure out where that's going. There is bipartisan interest in that. And there's a feeling that in other tech issues, maybe Congress has waited too long to get their arms around something. So there is a real desire to put together something on that. China competition continues to dominate. It's actually a a consistent area of bipartisan, bicameral agreement where the Senate committees are working through another China competitiveness framework looking for bipartisan legislation. There are any number of places where there are legislative green shoots out there where you could see things moving. There are also some things that have to get done. For example, the farm bill does have to get reauthorized. If we don't have a new farm bill on September 30th, on on October 1st, we revert to New Deal ag policies, which all kinds of crazy stuff happen with dairy prices and crop supports and whatnot. And now we're not, it's not going to lapse, but they may need to do an extension to get a farm bill in next Congress. But the farm bill has to get done. You've got to reauthorize the FAA. Everyone is paying attention to commercial air travel over Secretary Buttigieg has been very aggressive on that. You've got... Uh, pipeline reauthorization, which has new focus on it after the uh, East Palestine derailment. And there's the, there's always look at is, can we do more on healthcare? Are there things they can get 60 votes in the Senate to tweak policies on healthcare, those types of things. So there, there is a lot going on that's outside of this budget fight. I will say that when you talk to people on the Hill or when you try and get a, a reporter's attention recently, there's no there was no oxygen. The debt limit was taking up all the oxygen. That was the story. Now that space can be released and people can give mind share and attention to other things. So I do think it will unclog the system in some ways now that we're past this and let other issues rise to the fore. It is interesting how much goes on beneath the notice of average, even politically interested Americans. This The stuff that happens in the farm bill, incredibly important. The stuff that happens in... The, the FA, believe me, if you're fed up with the fact that airline travel sucks, you really should care about this kind of thing. But it's it, it's just a continued theme. It's so much happens under the surface of the public's notice, and it really matters for how we live our day-to-day lives. One thing that is going to get continued public notice is the judicial nomination process. This has been a source of significant frustration for Democrats in recent months. Back in February, there was a whole raft of headlines about how President Biden had actually nominated and confirmed more judges to the federal judiciary than Trump had at the same point, and Trump was on a breakneck pace. He was really doing quite well, and he was doing great by all kinds of measures, including diversity of nominations. Something like three quarters of nominations were people of color. More than two thirds were women. Really doing, I'd say, a bang up job there. But then we had the whole period where Dianne Feinstein was out, tremendous amount of controversy around that. And more recently, there's been a lot of discussion about blue slips. 
the Senate has this very arcane rule about who is cool, like who's a star-bellied snitch and who's not. Could you just explain quickly, what is a blue slip? What's the controversy? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. A blue, and we are going now deep into the into the Senate hearing rooms on this. A blue slip is basically a Senate custom where a judicial nominee has to get the approval of both of the senators from that state. If there's a New Hampshire nominee, both Senator Shaheen and Senator Hassan would have to sign off on that nominee for them to move forward. In an example like that, where it's the same party, typically not an issue where you have a split delegation or where you have a, a Republican senator and a Democratic administration, sometimes it can be used as a way to delay or derail a nomination. A lot of arguments against it are similar to the arguments against the filibuster. And I think a lot of the caution around the question, why wouldn't this go away? It's also similar. It's, it is, whenever you have the majority, it is very tempting to remove roadblocks, but the pendulum of politics always swings back the other way. And you can have debates over the relative merits of getting rid of the filibuster on judicial nominations and then having that expanded. So you could argue, not necessarily, but you could argue that that's, that was the domino that fell that then led to getting rid of the filibusters for Supreme Court. A, a first move on the filibuster by Democrats gets you eventually Gorsuch and, and the Trump Supreme Court through the Senate. It's You always have to be thinking about what happens when you're not in power. And that that tends to give some pause. Just so I understand the argument here. So right now, you don't even necessarily, if the president nominates you to be a federal judge, you don't even necessarily get to have a vote. Like the whole thing that Mitch McConnell pulled on Merrick Garland, where it's, we're not even going to have a vote on this. It's that kind of power is left in the hands of individual senators who can basically blackball someone if they're from the senator's home state. And we had... 33 groups, including the American Constitution Society, helmed by our former guests, former Wisconsin Senator Russ Feingold, the Alliance for Justice, Demand Justice, helmed by a former colleague of yours. 33 center-left advocacy groups called for this past month getting rid of blue slips. And Dick Durbin, who heads the Judiciary Committee, has consistently said, we're not going to do that. And the reasoning is what goes around comes around. And especially looking at a difficult Senate map for Democrats in 2024, looking at the very distinct possibility that Republicans could be back in charge, this is one of the points of leverage that the minority holds on to to keep extremists out of the federal judiciary. And if we let it go now, the worm will turn in the next couple of years, and we could end up with some truly crazy MAGA types on the federal bench. that is that basically the situation? Yeah, that's the argument that for caution on this, certainly, is that there, you already have a lowered threshold with the simple majority vote on judges. And if you get rid of the ability for a Democratic senator in a state to pump the brakes on a, a second term Trump judge, that, that's just one, one less barrier to a shift in the judiciary. There's also been a lot of continued discussion about Senator Feinstein's status. I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable position because you have to work with all Senate offices, including hers. But my interpretation of this has been, I hear the arguments for trying to give her a push out the door. And I come down on the side of, I think those arguments are wrong. 
because I referenced a moment ago the Merrick Garland situation. I think we've seen from Mitch McConnell that there's really no norm or rule that he would be uncomfortable breaking. And there's my understanding of the situation is if Senator Feinstein resigned and if Governor Gavin Newsom of California appointed a successor, there is no guarantee that Republicans would agree to place that successor on the Judiciary Committee, meaning that Democrats might lose their majority on that committee. It would actually hurt our ability to confirm judges. And we're better served whatever physical issues Senator Feinstein is having. We're better served if our goal is to confirm Democratic president-nominated judges were better served to have her on that committee as long as possible. Is that right? Is that argument at least? Yeah, procedurally, that's correct. Because the way that senators get put on committees is actually by a resolution that goes through the Senate floor where each side basically puts their rosters in. And then usually it goes through unanimously, but there's nothing special about it. So it's subject to a filibuster. And so in a scenario where McConnell wanted to whip Republicans to keep a Feinstein successor off of a committee. He could do that. I just think, and maybe this is a good note to end on, because we started by saying, look, the debt deal was a win for President Biden and the Democrats. But we have to acknowledge in the same breath that it was not just a win for Speaker McCarthy and the Republicans, a win for sanity and things can still work. And behind the scenes, the professionals there are still adults in the room getting things done, and it's not all just partisan vitriol and warfare. I think there's something to be said for that when it comes to the judicial nomination process. There's something really screwy about our political incentives. And I'm this is a callback to something you said on this show a year and a half ago. If we want our institutions and government to work, we want the inside incentives to change. We have to change the outside incentives. This is a case where people's political incentives are really broken, especially in the Republican Party. And while I think, I don't think highly of Mitch McConnell as a politician or a human being, but I think that he has shown, especially around this debt ceiling situation, that he's not a maniac. He, in a different political incentive world, he would say, yeah. Of course, put the senator you want on the Judiciary Committee. But there's just no political way in today's Republican Party that many Republican senators can vote to essentially give the Democrats back their majority on the Judiciary Committee. Any vote like that to agree to a new senator on that committee amounts to a 30-second ad being run against you in a Republican primary saying so-and-so voted for more Democrat judges. And it's just, I, it's a bit of a bummer of a down note to end on, but I just, it just, it calls me back to something you pointed out that I thought was so insightful, which is there's something really broken about that. If we could ever fix those incentives, we could have a lot more sanity in Washington along the lines of what we've just seen prevail in the debt ceiling situation. Yeah, in in the case of the Judiciary Committee specifically, you had a preview of that when Senator Feinstein did request that somebody step in for her temporarily and Republicans signaled that they would not let that fly. We did actually have a test case on that 
But you're right. That's the, especially through the Trump administration, actually going back to Garland, where there are people who voted for Trump because of the court and because of that opening, the courts have become such an animating force in our politics. On the other side of it, you look at post-Dobbs, what's happened in elections across the country, and most recently that Wisconsin Supreme Court election, with the courts being such an animating issue on both sides. And if you are in a position to stop what you would characterize as a takeover from the other side, and you, you know, the way it be framed is you unilaterally disarm or you step aside because of decorum or tradition or whatever, your activist community does not care about those things. And you do have to worry about being held to account. So that it, the external incentives really are, really do point to the hard line on that many times. Ryan McConaughey, you are doing outstanding work. You continue to do outstanding work. You are relentlessly positive, which I discovered as you, as I was moaning about some of the difficulties of learning how to do lighting for YouTube. And you're like, wow, an opportunity to learn new things. You're like the kid in the story. Skills are good. Skills are good. Skills are good. The, the kid in the story who gets a room full of crap for her birthday and she pulls out a shovel and starts digging and her parents are like, what are you so happy about? And she's, wow, with all this crap, there's gotta be a pony in here somewhere. The relentless positivity and the deep insights are deeply appreciated. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me back, Mac. Always, always a good time. Thank you. <laughs>